Support for this program is provided by Chevron, the human energy company. This is Politico Energy. I'm Catherine Morehouse. The United Nations Climate Change Conference starts this Thursday. And of course, the big question is, what will this year's climate talks actually produce? Well, a lot of that will depend on the United States and China, who jointly announced a surprise climate deal earlier this month. The upshot is that the world's two biggest emitters are talking once again after a year-long freeze, which is a good thing. The bad news is they still don't agree on big climate issues, and that may hinder how far global climate talks can go. So today, I chat with Politico's Zach Coleman and Sarah Schoenhart from Politico's e News about the climate divide between Beijing and Washington ahead of COP28. It's Monday, November 27th. So China and the U.S. have a history of having a really important imprint on the outcome of these global climate talks. So about a decade ago, then-President Obama and Chinese President Xi Jinping agreed to work together to jointly reduce their emissions, and that paved the way for the 2015 Paris Agreement, which sets targets for limiting global warming to levels considered safe. Since then, however, relations have really taken a nosedive over a host of issues related to trade, human rights abuses, and Taiwan, which China claims is part of its territory. In fact, China ended up suspending bilateral cooperation in several areas, including over climate, in August 2022, after then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made a visit to Taiwan. So there have been increased efforts to re-engage between the U.S. and China in more recent months, with several Biden administration officials traveling to China over the summer, including climate envoy John Kerry. He's also held several rounds of virtual meetings with his counterpart, Xia Jinhua. They met over several days in early November, and that ended with a joint statement that many saw as helping give a boost to the climate talks that will start in Dubai this week. The deal has some positive elements. It talks about reducing planet warming emissions by increasing renewable energy capacity And it widens the variety of heat-trapping gases both countries will address in their next round of climate targets. The U.S. had really been pushing China on that matter in particular because China is the largest emitter of methane, which is a gas that has far greater warming potential than carbon dioxide over a shorter period. So the question, I guess, at this point is whether that will be enough to land a deal at COP28 that really works to cut emissions, boost climate finance, and start correcting for the lack of action since the Paris Agreement was signed. Okay, so as you know, the U.S. and China have made some really significant strides in their negotiations on climate. But Zach, as you all are also reporting, China and the U.S. still remain really far apart on some critical issues Let's start with coal-fired power, which is obviously one of the biggest emitters, certainly on the power grid. Where do these countries stand on coal power? Well, the U.S., of course, doesn't have a centrally planned economy. So we're not building more coal-fired power plants here. It just, the economics don't make sense. So that's not an issue for us going forward in terms of, are we going to build coal-fired power plants? It's a question of how 
quickly the ones that we have are going to shut off or add technology that can capture the emissions and do something else with them so they don't affect the climate. And in China, they are still building coal-fired power plants at quite a rapid pace. The agreement that Sarah alluded to does seem to suggest that even if they are still building coal-fired power plants in China, that they might be running them less. They might have that as backup capacity, but it does say in that agreement that clean energy will substitute for coal, oil, and natural gas this decade and lead to a meaningful absolute reduction in emissions in the electricity sector. So that is a market change from where China had been in the past. But that being said, the difference on how both countries view the viability of coal-fired power in the next decade or two really matters for the negotiating posture at the talks where China is very much in league with a lot of the developing countries that still see a role for coal. So if China still believes that there is viability here to build out coal infrastructure in other developing and emerging economies, then you're going to have major emissions from the power sector in those economies as well. So the U.S. is striving for a more defined, clear, strong statement in the near term about how we get beyond coal-fired power. And it remains to be seen exactly where China will land on this in the negotiations after this agreement that they had with the U.S. There is some movement perhaps, but they still likely will stake out some space for continued coal-fired power. And there's also kind of the awkward dynamic of clean energy manufacturing. We've seen domestically the U.S. really hinge a lot of its rhetoric on its climate and clean energy policies on the premise that we're really trying to beat China on developing clean energy technologies and producing things like batteries and EVs and solar panels and all of that. So how does that kind of direct rhetorical challenge from the U.S. and economic challenge from the U.S. impact these talks? I think it adds the overall strain and feeling of competition. I mean, there's certainly enough investment that we need in the clean energy economy to hit our climate goals. Like there's room for everyone here, right? But it does seem as if for China, it's almost a zero-sum game because they have such control over these supply chains that anyone trying to wrest it away from them seems like a loss for China. So they're likely to be critical of some of these policies that the U.S. and other countries are pursuing that are more protectionist, that seem geared and directed at China. And that's because they are, in a way. I mean, they have the broad sweep of the market on so many of these emerging sectors of the economy that we know are going to be crucial to manufacturing and to jobs going forward. And I also want to touch on the loss and damage fund, which is something you both have reported on extensively ahead of COP28. So where does China stand on paying to help rebuild developing countries that are most impacted by climate disasters? And how does their stance play into wider negotiations between wealthy countries and developing nations? Yeah, so this was an outcome of last year's climate talks and negotiators have been working over the past year to set the foundations or the design of that fund. China is defined as a developing country under the United Nations system, and it negotiates at climate talks with a developing country block known as the G77 and China. So while its economy has really grown tremendously, I think China acknowledges that, but also says that under the terms of the Paris Agreement, the U.S. and other industrialized countries who have contributed to emissions the longest 
have a responsibility to provide money and support to help developing countries transition their economies to cleaner systems and protect and rebuild after climate disasters. This is a major point of contention, I think, this year in particular. On one hand, the U.S. wants to avoid being on the hook for payments for climate damages and has long feared legal liability if it's seen as being the cause of those damages. It also wants to widen the number of contributors to include countries whose economies have really grown since the U.N. created these developed and developing categorizations in the early 1990s. On the other, China says it's not asking for money and is already providing climate finance to developing countries through its Belt and Road Infrastructure Initiative and other bilateral programs. So I think it sees itself more as a champion of developing nations. You know, all that's to say, I think these dynamics have the potential to create splits among countries at these climate negotiations, depending on where countries' priorities lie. And for many developing countries, the ability to make greater pledges to green their economy really comes down to how much money they're getting to do so. For more news on energy and the environment, subscribe to our free newsletter at politico.com slash power dash switch and subscribe to Politico Pro to read our morning energy newsletter. Some of the music in today's show is composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And that's our show. I'm Katherine Morehouse, and we'll see you back tomorrow. Today's program support is provided by Chevron. Progress means producing renewable fuels for today's fleets. Chevron intends to grow their renewable fuels production capacity to 100,000 barrels per day by 2030. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash renewable fuels.